Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Uh, today's guest, some of you might recognize him, especially if you saw him. I know this is audio only because Coley Harvey is an on-air sports personality for Fox Sports, Big Ten Network, sideline reporter for college football, Major League Baseball. He's in Chicago. He does studio shows. And he's even back in his old days. Now, this is a pretty young guy still, but in his old days, I worked for ESPN. Um, he's been on Sports Center. You, you definitely know him. He was a beat reporter uh, for the New York Yankees uh, and also our beloved Cincinnati Bengals. Come on, probably back in the good old days when they actually made the playoffs. So, Coley, welcome to the Driving Change Podcast. Hey, Jeff, thanks a lot for having me. In fact, yeah, the, those were the Bengals teams that were in the playoffs every year, still not winning a playoff game, but at least they were good enough to get there under Marvin Lewis. And uh, Andy Dalton, of course, was still a quarterback at that time. Fun times, fun memories, and um, certainly do miss Cincinnati. Yeah, the red rifle. He could get us he could get us to the dance. He just could not get us any further. <laughs> yeah. Uh well well thanks for for being on on the show. I'm a huge sports nut and we'll, I promise the audience we won't just talk about sports for the episode. We're going to go into a lot of different directions with Coley. Um you've got so many great perspectives on life uh, from your upbringing to your professional career and all the different experiences you had. Um, I love that you're a sports historian and you, you, you nerd out on some of that stuff. I, I do this do as well, but like every guest we have on the show, we always start by letting the audience get to know the Coley Harvey origin story. So tell us a little bit about your background. Oh man, uh, I will try to keep this brief, <laughs> but a little about my background. So I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, you know, uh, grew up throughout the '90s and and I guess even the early 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 2000s uh, when I graduated high school. And um, you know, I've I've had some some really unique experiences in life because of being from Atlanta. You know, some of the uh, the experiences, uh, whether it's around race, class, whatnot, in in the South, um, you know, I've had some of those experiences and I've also had them in other places that I've lived in, uh, you know, over time. Um, what kind of got me into journalism, I would say, is what you just mentioned, that that nerdy history uh, person that's within me. I mean, I've been a history buff for as long as I can remember. I, I mean, in, in elementary school, I remember, uh, and I used this example uh, several weeks ago, but I remember I used to draw out the states, you know, when I was in like the first and second grade. I loved U.S. geography and I loved U.S. history. I loved learning about basically why things were interconnected and why certain events were direct uh, influences of others, you know, basically the cause and effect of why one thing happened and, you know, what led to something else happening, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, so, yeah, I've always been kind of a history student. Uh, I've, you know, paid attention to politics growing up. And I actually thought that my career was going to take me in the into the news route. I thought that that was uh, really where I was going to be headed. But, I kind of got an internship early in college that was in sports and I loved it. Baseball is my number one passion. Uh, you know, even though I've covered football, I've covered basketball, um, obviously very familiar with soccer and some of those other sports. Baseball has been my passion since I was six years old and I've always wanted to be around it. And um, I had an internship when I was in college that 
allowed me actually to cover my hometown team to cover the Atlanta Braves for MLB.com. And then the next summer, I covered the San Francisco Giants when Barry Bonds was still chasing uh, Hank Aaron's home run record. I missed the, the milestone home runs that year, uh, but he was he was hot on on Hank Aaron's trail by that point. And so um, so uh, doing those internships really kind of got me going into sports and made me say, okay, maybe this news thing just isn't going to happen. <laughs> I think we'll just kind of stay into this lane. And next thing you know, as I got into my career from a full-time basis, it was all sports related. And, um, and I haven't looked back since. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Of course, I've been in and out of baseball at times throughout my career. And, and even now, I'm really hoping to get back into it in a little bit more of a fashion than I am even today. So, um, so that, that's, that's kind of the nutshell uh, uh, origin story, I guess you could say, but my upbringing in Atlanta, Georgia really shaped me. I uh, went to school in Chicago where I live right now went at uh, Northwestern University. Those experiences certainly shaped me. And then from there, it was bouncing around, you know, first full-time job was back in Georgia, then Florida, and uh, I was moving in the right direction. I was going further and further south, you know, uh, trying to get that warm air. And uh, since then, I've been going the wrong way. It was up to Cincinnati, <laughs> then it was to New York, and now it's Chicago. So, um, so yeah, I haven't, uh, I haven't done a good job with the weather <laughs> in, in my most recent moves. But, uh, but so North, Northwest, way. Northwestern grad. So you just, you didn't get accepted into Ohio state or was that, was that the problem or <laughs> <laughs> did not apply to Ohio state? Come on, come on, Coley. No, it's a, all the guests right now know that if you're a Northwestern grad, you're way smarter than all of us listening probably. Um, yeah. so, so who, who had, who had the biggest influence on you as a young boy, as you were growing up and you're like kind of viewing the world around you, starting to form some of those really foundational beliefs in, in who you are today. Who, who was that person or people? Absolutely. My parents. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, if it wasn't for my mom, actually, I wouldn't have gotten into baseball when I did. She was adamant in telling my dad, Hey, we've got to, you know, take him out for little league when I was six years old. My dad actually wanted to wait for a few more years, a couple more years. Um, I guess he wasn't sure if I'd really be interested in the sport at that time. And I mean, like I said, I latched onto it from from the moment, I, you know, the moment that my coach, you know, hit me a ground ball and I fielded it and threw it back. I was hooked, you know, and um, and that was my mom that uh, that that convinced me to do that. My grandmother as well. I can remember at six and seven years old playing in the front yard with her, uh, showing her how to, you know, how I would hit and how I would swing and all this. Um, and, and this is a grandmother who at one point in time, lived very briefly in New York. She lived in New York at the same time that Jackie Robinson was playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers oh, wow. for a, a lot of her life. She was a Dodgers fan uh, because of because of seeing Jackie Robinson, uh, you know, across the color barrier in Major League Baseball. And then, of course, the Braves come to Atlanta in 1966 and her being from Georgia, uh, she became a Braves fan. And, and as a kid, I, when the Braves were very good in the 90s, uh, you know, she would be watching games some nights that I wasn't watching. You know, she was keeping very, uh, very close tabs on that team. So um, so that's just from a baseball standpoint. But from a life perspective, I, I gained so much from those three individuals uh, alone. And, uh, and certainly I've had teachers along the way that were influences and coaches along the way who were influences. But when it comes to knowing who I am as a person, uh, as, as just a human being, but also as a man in this country, um, I have to credit my parents and I have to credit the, the experiences that they went through. My dad, actually, when he was 
in middle school, integrated his own uh, middle school. And, um, and in, in years since, we've learned uh, just kind of the way that some of his classmates reacted at the, t- at the time and, you know, maybe ways that they wish they had reacted at the time. Um, we've learned more in, in, in years since uh, just about what that entire experience was like for not only him, but for them as well. And um, it's, uh, yeah, there, there's just so much that I owe my parents to. Now, what we'll get to this as we go along, but with that kind of your formative years and, and the love for sports, and then obviously, you know, you had a, a passion for some level of journalism or news or reporting and all that. Like, what, what's if you had to sum it up your your kind of vision purpose statement, if you will? Like, what what legacy do you want to leave? Oof. You know, I ask this question all the time in my role as a journalist. I ask it to people all the time. For me, I, I don't think I've ever been asked that. So um, forgive me for being on the spot a little bit. But I, I think the biggest legacy that I'd like to live uh, leave is that people recognize that I have done what I could in my limited time on earth to make life for those behind me somewhat better. You know, I don't have kids right now myself. I would like to, I just have not had, had children at this point in my life. Um, but that is, that is something that I think about is what is the world going to look like when they're my age, you know, when they're adults. Um, and I want to make sure that I'm doing my part to make it a much better place. Um, and, and I think that was my parents' motivation. You know, they, they grew up in a time when the world, especially the country, was really beginning to go through some changes. And we've been in our own share of changes here in the last uh, year or two, really. And I think that that's also, you know, had some foundational formation on me. And um, I guess that's my thing is I want to make sure that I'm leaving this world better, not only for, you know, people who are of my blood, but also young journalists. Uh, You know, just this morning, I had a friend reach out to me and say, hey, you know, I've connected with this, uh, this young kid who's coming out of college. And, you know, we had a great connection, but I think he could use another mentor. Is it okay if I reach, you know, if I connect you guys, if I have him reach to you? Um, and, And so it's doing things like that. I think that's part of my legacy now is just making sure that I'm connecting the past with my present and also with the future. And, um, and I, you know, there's some days I wonder if I'm doing enough in that regard. But uh, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm still a fairly young guy. So I think I have a little time to, to time. get to, uh, to some of that. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I guess that's part of my legacy right there. Well, and you and I were talking about this a little bit in the pre-show. Um, so let's, let's, let's dive into this a little bit. I'd love your perspective on you know, the state of race relations today. So here we are. Uh, we we try not to timestamp the, the the episodes, but you know we're we're in early 2021 here, around in the corner on Q1, Q2, or 2021. What did we get right in the last year to 18 months, and what did we get wrong? I mean, as as a as a society and as a country, what do you think really helped advance us in this idea of unity? And what what did we kind of miss along the way? Yeah, that we need oh. to probably still lean into. Is that that makes sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I I think what we got right, at least at a point of time. I you know I don't know personally. I think that things have kind of changed backwards in, in some ways. But I, I think I'm, I'm thinking back to the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's murder at the end of May last you know in in 2000. And I'm thinking about those first couple of months. I think what we got right was that enough people opened their eyes and said, whoa, okay, now I understand what 
the concerns are for a lot of people in this country. You know, I've spoken at times publicly and privately um, with friends and family, uh, but about my own experiences uh, with uh, policing and and what I feel is profiling, uh, not even what I feel, what I know is profiling. Um, and thankfully, I have not had anything that has gone too far south in some of those, those instances, but it could only take one decision or one split second, something could go wrong, and it could have. And I think that's what we got right, is that people were able to realize, okay, you know, it, it's horrifying to see this video, it's difficult to watch, it's difficult to stomach, but you understand now when people say they have a certain level of discomfort uh, with policing and law enforcement in this country, uh, I think that opened enough people's eyes. What we got wrong, I would say, is just that, and honestly, it's going to take time to get to this point, but I think what we got wrong is just that we're just not quite there yet. You know, we haven't, we haven't convinced enough of the population that there needs to be tangible change, you know, and clearly uh, there have been certain changes that corporations have made, uh, some policies, uh, you know, in the past couple of months have been uh, made to try to change some, some things, but it, it, we haven't gotten that concrete definition of what change is. And the thing about it as well is we kind of have forgotten how many, uh, when it comes to race in this country, we forget how many things are overlapping. And the reason I bring it up that way is because as we're talking right now, you have states like my home state of Georgia, and uh, I believe Iowa is another one where they're basically working on disenfranchising parts of the voting population just based off of what happened last fall in the election, uh, where, you know, I'm not trying to get into people's politics and who you vote for and that kind of thing. But it was after that election that all of a sudden states are working to figure out uh, changing their voting laws and their voting requirements. And a lot of that is going to disenfranchise uh, younger voters and black voters, most uh, most especially. And I, I just, we can't divorce that from being part of what was going on last summer as well. Um, that's why I say we've gotten some things wrong because clearly that's policy that goes against the building up of unity that we were that we were aspiring to. The fact that we had such record turnout in the in the uh, election at times across the country, I think that as Americans we should be celebrating. I don't care again who you vote for, one way or the other, whatever party. But the fact that you had so many people getting out to to express their belief and express their opinions in the ballot box, that's important. And I think when we start to get to some of the to to to, to this point where we're starting to change some of these laws to take away people's opportunities to vote, you know, that that's taking away the American dream for some people. And um, again, I, I just think that there's so much, there's so much nuance when it comes to race and, and class and, and caste and all of these, these things within the, um, within the U S with all these hierarchies, uh, there's so many layers to it. And that's why I, I, I don't think that we can, uh, we, we can't divorce the fact that, uh, what happened with George Floyd and that response, it, it, you can't separate it from what's also going on in some of the states where they are disenfranchising Black voters who it sounded like were getting their, their voices heard last summer. Um, and so that's why I'm saying it's just that there are some things we've gotten wrong and they're not really, uh, they're not meshing. They're not meshing still. 
you know, I don't think I've asked any of my other African-American guests this question. I was thinking about it as you were talking. So I'm going to put you on the spot again on one, see how, see how it goes. Uh, the regular listeners know that, you know, we're, we root everything in, in neuroscience and because that's a lot deeper than, than skin color. It's how right. our brains operate. Right. And as, as our default button, our default setting as human beings is self-preservation. It is. And you have to actually be able to overcome self-preservation in order to even have some level of unity in any conversation, empathy. We'll get into that in a minute. I know that's one of your favorites. Uh, but a lot of people, I think, make the mistake of saying racism is rooted in hatred. I don't believe that, actually. I believe racism is rooted in fear. Mm. And, and so I can prove it with science, but I want to ask you and say, if, if you were to accept that premise that racism is rooted in fear, tell me why you think that would be the case. I accept it 150%. Um, you know, uh, I mean, historically, that's what it goes to, right? Uh, when we when we think back to uh, to the Jim Crow South, and we think about a lot of the laws that were put in place to disenfranchise Black people or to segregate Black people, in many ways, it was done because of the fear of what mixing the races would mean. Um, you know, and and that's not just even in the physical sense of you know people around each other uh, physically, but also sexually uh, uh, from a marriage standpoint. That's fear. That had nothing to do with right. anything else. You know, I, I'm, you can't convince me otherwise. Um, and that even that even trickles down to just some of our uh, interactions in, in certain ways today. I, I brought up the law enforcement uh, concern that people have. Um, you know, there have been times where I've been stopped and I can feel the fear in the police officer, you know, and he doesn't know who I am. He doesn't know me from Adam. I don't know him from Adam, but I'm the one who should be fearful. He's the one with the gun, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but I can feel the fear and that's, that, that's what it is. It's okay. I don't know which direction for him. Yeah. I don't know which direction this, this interaction is going to go. So I need to be on guard and I have to be fearful too, because he's got a gun, <laughs> you know, I don't know which right. direction. It's going to go. Um, so I, I agree 150% with that. I, I think that fear is, is what is what guides it. Fear guides hate, you know. Um, and that's why I, when we talk about building diversity and unity, I was actually having this conversation yesterday with a friend. That's why when we have these opportunities to interact with people who are not like us, we should do it, you know, and we should do it wholeheartedly. I I uh, recently, just because we, we had such bad weather here uh, for the last several weeks in Chicago, I actually broke away and went down to Mexico for uh, for a couple of days, uh, really just because I needed to get away and, you know, and, and I researched everything. The place was very safe from a COVID standpoint, you know, people were masking and distancing and all that. And I experienced that while I was down there. But I also had a chance to interact with a lot of people uh, who were not like me. You know, I speak some Spanish. Uh, I understand it more than I speak it, I think. But I told myself down there, I'm going to try to speak Spanish as much as I can down here. I'm going to try to interact with people in their home language as much as I can. And that surprised a lot of people pleasantly. You know, they were they were very glad to interact with me that way. But in fact, I had a lot of people say, oh, man, your, your Spanish is good. Where did you learn Spanish? school, I guess, you know, um, uh, so, um, but, but that, that was, that was important for me because I'm not around, uh, 
native Spanish speakers in their home country that often. And, um, and I wanted to make sure that they took something away from me. I took something away from them and actually have friends that I've made who've been, uh, you know, messaging me on, on, you know, some of the social media channels since I got back. So that just, that, that's just an, a small example of what I'm, I'm saying when I say we want to make sure that we're building those bridges uh, because far too often that fear is keeping us from doing that. Yeah, and this really does. That, that's a perfect segue. I know you. I know you all in journalism like segues, so that's a perfect segue, uh, right? Right into you, you know, you and I share this that um, not just empathy, but the need for intentional empathy, and and that's what you did, right? You demonstrated intentional empathy and put yourself in a position to show someone else that you were thinking about them in their situation, even though they were very different than you, because the minute you do that, you actually reduce the cortisol literally in the brain. It reduces the stress. It increases really a hormone or neurotransmitter called oxytocin, which builds trust subconsciously, all because you took the step to do intentional empathy. And we are not doing that enough in our country and in our conversations. So I'll, I'll give you the, I'll give you the mic again for a minute on empathy, because I know this is a big, big thing that you like to to talk about. And I couldn't agree more with your philosophy on it. So give our, give our audience a little, a little pep talk on empathy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> pep talk. Um, so, uh, so I think you mentioned this at the top, but at one point, well, during the Martin Luther King Jr. Day that week, um, I, I know at uh, St. Saint, Saint X in Cincinnati, St. Xavier, they were having that celebration for a full week, and I had a chance to speak to the students. and And my message was about energy and empathy. And empathy, going right to your point, it's got to be intentional. You have to make sure that you're being intentional about the way that you. Uh, learn about someone else that you not just not not just learn to, to to hear what someone else has gone through or what someone else's life story is, but really have that conversation. Try to figure out well well why do you work? Why do you act this way? Or or what is it about this particular aspect of your life that really makes you tick? Um, and 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 I think that goes to the heart of just the example that I was giving uh, just a few minutes ago. I mean, I'm I'm literally talking to this man. What we we connect because he was wearing a. Uh, a Seattle Seahawks jersey or shirt, uh, shirt. And so we just kind of connect talking about football, talking about sports. And then we start realizing, oh, we've got this kind of in common. Oh, oh, you live here. Oh, okay. Oh, you've been here. You know, you've got family here. So we start connecting on other ways that are even deeper. And that's when you get into that intentional uh, empathy because you're, you're connecting in, in things that you have in common with that person. I think that's what we forget a lot is that we, we feel like we have so many differences, whether it is by race or by gender or by uh, religion or what have you. We, we, we look at the difference first and foremost, and it's, it's easy uh, phenotypically to see that first, first off. But we always have to come back to the fact, as you said, we're human beings. We have similar experiences within our lives. And when we start to share some of those experiences, that's when the empathy really rings true. And that's when we're breaking down those walls. Um, you know, that's when the fear doesn't become a thing. I, I, I don't I won't say that I was fearful uh, at, at all while I was down there, but certainly, you know, you're you're if I don't understand the language, I'm trying to be, you know, kind of on my P's and Q's to figure out what I can. Uh, thankfully, there's also enough people in, in Mexico who speak English, so that's not really uh, too much of a concern. But um, 
but you are kind of like, okay, you know, let me really hone in right here. And then when you have somebody who kind of tears down that wall, who is just really trying to be a friend, uh, that brings down whatever concern or fear in, in, our, in other instances, that brings that down as well. And I don't know, maybe, obviously, you know the science to it, but maybe that's what it is. You know, when, when people are acting that way uh, in that kind of transactional nature, um, you know, it, uh, it brings down the, 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 the stress levels in both parties. And I think, again, that's, I think that's where we make those connections. That's where that, that empathy becomes so important that, um, that we are seeing the unity, that we aren't seeing the division. Uh, like I said, whether it's race or skin or, 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 or gender or religion, that doesn't exist. What exists is the fact that we're all part of the same human body. I think it was uh, one of my favorite quotes. I think it was Covey that said, I think this is a big misconception, by the way, on empathy. I think Stephen Covey said, empathy isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking more of others. And I think because the way we're wired, we think, well, if I think about somebody else, therefore I'm I'm reducing myself. No, it's not you don't care about yourself. You can't not do that. That's risk mitigation, self-preservation is just biology. But if you can intentionally start to think of others. I love, you know, my, my father was Marine. My, my papa, my grandfather was in the army. I think about military and I think about sports. You and I talked about this a little bit. The irony of those things is when you talk to guys who are in the military, they will tell you they didn't see color. That in their platoon, they didn't see color. Why did they not see color? Because they saw each other as equals fighting a common enemy. Same thing with sports, right? You don't see color. You see a, a, a guys are in, they're in their uniforms on the same team with a common mission and a common goal. We have these examples all throughout our lives, except when we're not in one of those team or, or environments. Then anytime we see somebody who looks, sounds, feels different than us, our brain sends up a red flag that says they must be da- different equals danger. And it's a lie. It's a lie. Now, we're, we're built sometimes to recognize danger, right? You should do that when you're in a dark alley and, you know, somebody sure, walks yeah. by and you hear, you know, that, that's what we're wired for that. But the problem is, is we've taken that self-preservation and we've, we've applied it to all areas of our life. And it causes guys like you and I to not really deeply connect when we're the same person who we're human beings who care about the same things and love the same way and all that stuff. And so I love that you're spreading that message out, not just to the young, young kids that you did like at the St. X uh, talk, but just in general in your life. So thank you for doing that. Yeah. You know, what's interesting when you were saying that, thank you again for, uh, for that. But um, I, I, I think about, I, I think about honestly, the, the debate that we had within the NFL uh, the last few years over the anthem and Colin Kaepernick's uh, stance and 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 whatnot, um, you you had a lot of people who were looking at that, who were seeing someone who was different than them, who uh, wasn't acting in the way that they would act or protesting in they in the way that they would protest, and they took exception, and instead of actually trying to listen to what he was saying, um, and there were some flaws within, uh, within kind of the way that he went about things. I, I actually agree with that aspect of it, but the overall mission is one that I felt like, you know, just throughout society, we, we all should have been applauding. Um, and we weren't as a, as an entire society. Um, I, I think about that in part because I think back to this one day, I believe it was a 2015 season when I was, in Cincinnati, that would have been the last full season that I covered. Um, 
And uh, this was just a day before a game. This was a Friday uh, before a Sunday game. And typically your Friday workouts, uh, they're your light. They're, they're pretty light. You know, Thursdays are kind of a little, Thursdays actually, are, excuse me, Thursdays are your heavy days. Fridays are a little bit of a walkthrough. And then Saturday is a true walkthrough. And then of course the game on Sunday, it's all about kind of ramping the body towards Sunday. And uh, so Friday is like an hour workout. You know, they're not, they're not really on the field that much. They're working out, you know, in the weight room, they're doing other uh, stretching, yoga, you know, acupuncture, whatever, all those other things. Friday is the heavy day for a lot of that stuff. But there's one day before practice, um, <laughs> you know, we're in the club or we're in the locker room, uh, some of the reporters and I, and it was kind of one of those days where there just wasn't much going on storyline wise. So it was just kind of, you're there just to make sure nothing crazy happens. And out of nowhere, <laughs> I, I hear out of the corner of the locker room, just this bickering, you know, these guys are going at it. Mind you, the, the, the election was just really beginning to ramp up at that point. Um, and so there was a lot of political chatter in this corner of the locker room. And you had guys of different backgrounds, different colors, you know, coming kind of this corner and they're debating each other. They're going back and forth at it. And of course, I, I can't jump in, but I'm standing there like a fly on the wall watching this like, wow this is intense debate, you know? And all of a sudden somebody looks up and says, oh, we got about five minutes to get, you know, or 10 minutes or whatever to get to the field. And it was like that, it just shut off. And it was Over. like, oh, we're on a team again. We yeah, can high five, let's like go. crazy, but we're on a team. We have a singular mission. And I love you like my brother because you're on my left. I love you like my brother because you're on my right. We are, we are unified as one. And that was when all this was going on with Colin Kaepernick it was around that same time. And so, uh, or actually, I guess technically that happened next, the next year, uh, but it was leading into that. That was kind of fueling some of his motivation. Um, so I, I use that as that example that I will never forget just how quickly the light switch went off for them. And even if you heard the debates every once in a while for the rest of the year, it wasn't ever a thing that guys brought with them on the field or took home with them. It was, this is the locker room. It's going to happen here. We're going to get it out in here, but we're still friends at the end of the day. We're still fighting for the same mission. And uh, I just wish, to your point, I wish that broader society, that we were placed in those situations more. Yes, we work with people who are different, uh, you know, who are different backgrounds than us. Um, we're out and about in our lives. We are, but we don't have those opportunities to connect with someone on a way where, um, I can tell you the truth. I can tell you exactly how I feel and you're not going to take any offense. We don't have those opportunities as a broader society. And, um, you know, and I think that's part of what, what hurts us uh, in some of those. We haven't gotten much to sports, but this has been great. So, so <laughs> let me sorry. ask you one of the, no, this is great. I love it. So look, one of the things that's got me kind of wrapped around the axle a bit is this whole cancel culture thing yeah. that we're in the midst of. I, I don't get it. I, I just don't get it. And I think, uh, you know, we, we, I guess we just canceled Pepe Le Pew this week now. So, uh, you know, I, this, I you know, know the, the French, the French skunk. Yeah. Because I won't even say why they said he was canceled, but he's canceled. Um, well, isn't that the wrong answer? Is it, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Cause if you disagree, please, I know you'll tell me, I don't get that. Can you give, give me some, give me some, uh, some perspective on the cancel culture. Yeah, well, you know, as you're telling me that, I'm thinking about, uh, and again, I know we're not trying to date this too much, but I, I just, because it's fresh in mind, uh, you know, I'm thinking about the um, the interview with uh, Oprah and uh, Meghan Markle and, and Prince Harry, and 
the response to that from Piers Morgan, who was being challenged, uh, you know, on one of the morning shows in Britain by one of his colleagues who was black. Uh, he was being challenged, not really, not in a, in a negative way. I mean, his colleague was just saying some facts and was saying, you know, Piers, I just, you know, just make sure that you're looking yourself in the mirror when, uh, when you, you know, before you speak. And Piers gets up and walks off. Like, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want, you know. To me, that's the epitome of what we're saying with this cancel culture, because somebody is challenging me in, in a way that I disagree with. Instead of interacting with them in a debate, like I just mentioned with the Bengals, with what the players were doing that day, instead of engaging in a back and forth and trying to see what both sides are saying, you just get up and walk away. You know, oh, I'm just going to take my ball. I'm going to cancel this. You know, Pepe Le Pew, oh, he's just done. We're not going to talk about why he's done. He's just going to be done. You know, right. that that um, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, And and I think, again, it's just, it's this, this self-defeating attitude, again, brought on by fear. It's the fear to confront what's real and what's true. And that's a fear that in this country we have been dealing with since our, our inception, you know, not confronting the truth about slavery, not confronting the truth about the civil war. Um, and uh, and I think in this case, it's it's yeah, it's not understanding nuance, not giving nuance a chance to breathe. And some of this cancel culture, I guess you could blame on social media because it's like, you know, something is a big story today and then tomorrow you move on, you know, and then something right. else and you move on. Um, so maybe that's part of it as well. But uh, but I just wish that there were opportunities for more nuance. And uh, and that Piers Morgan example that just really resonated that way because instead of trying to to listen to the the very very constructive criticism that his colleague was giving him he just gets up and walks off the set you know and that and i think that that's what we're seeing a lot of with this cancel culture today yeah i think there's there's valid reasons to have debate but to your point the word debate around things that might send the wrong message maybe there's things there that nobody really fully appreciated the impact it was having but it feels like now we're just trying to we're just trying to find stuff to be stupid about that yeah. nobody in a million years thought Dr. Seuss was racist, but now suddenly, you know, Dr. Seuss is gone and we yeah. can't have green eggs and ham. Now I don't know the backstory. Maybe, maybe there was a lot there, right? I don't want to overstep. I would get out of my skis on this, but I just keep going. We have so many bigger issues yes. <laughs> to, to have the dialogue about than whether Pepe Le Pew or now, now, now Aristocats and, and all these oh, Disney God. things are getting pulled. I'm just like, what's going on here? Where am I living? Uh, anyways, yeah. let's, let's shift gears as we, as we start to, to round third and head for home. Um, <laughs> in, the, in the sports world, because you and I talked about how the unity happens there. It's such a great, it's a great leveler, right, of backgrounds, cultures, because everybody has the common mission, common goal. You've been immersed in this world for your whole career. You've had the advantage and the privilege of being on sidelines and watching some really amazing, super elite athletes do the things that they do better than anybody else in the world. So I'm going to ask you two questions. Number one, what's the most memorable live event that you had the privilege of viewing live um, as a reporter where you were there, either in the stadium, on the field? Um, and then number two, what's the most embarrassing event that's happened to you as a reporter, whether it was in the booth or whether it was on the sideline? So those are your two questions. You could go whichever direction or order you want to go. Man, the embarrassing one, I can't, oh. I, I can think of I can think of things that I've written that were probably embarrassing in, per, in terms of like things that have that have happened to me. I can't think of anything um, 
too embarrassing right now, but I can think of stories I've written where I look back. I still have friends that will send me certain columns and column headlines like, hey, yeah, you really got this one right. Or you remember this? You wrote this one. You remember writing that? Yeah, (laughs) that happens a lot, you know. Um, And of course, I'm always like, yeah, I remember because it stays with me up here. Um, Well, you know, it's funny. It used to be that you the writers were the ones who always had everything memorialized so you could never escape anything. And and those who just said stuff, those were things that would drift away. But now with social media, everybody's memorialized, right? Everything. (laughs) How about that? How about that? How about the... I was going to say, how about that monumental event that maybe you got to to, to see, yeah. or maybe it was just being in the presence of one of the athletes that you'd always admired and getting yeah. to meet them for the first time. What what's some of that been like? Oh man, I've I've been very fortunate. I I was just racking my brain when you uh, when you asked the question, and and the first thing that popped in my head um, was actually this, um, and I guess it popped in my head because of you know I know you know this basketball season was very unique. And uh, just thinking about the NCAA tournament. So this would have been in 2017, I believe it was. Um, when I lived in New York, the uh, the tournament had a regional at Madison Square Garden. And Wisconsin and Florida were playing in this just epic game that went to, I think it went to double overtime. It might have just been one overtime. I can't remember if it was one or two. But anyway, they're in overtime. And um Florida guard Chris Chioza, I can't remember who he plays for now. He's in the NBA now, but, um, you know, he's bringing the ball up the floor. There's just a couple seconds on the clock. Literally, he gets to the half court line, just throws up a heave. And I'm kind of in the tunnel, you know, watching just in case. I see the ball go up and I happen to catch a glimpse of the basket and it went through. And, and it was just this this unbelievable game winner because he was at half court, had no reason to make that shot. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and doing that at Madison Square Garden was a really cool moment. So Florida won that game and uh, just talking to him after the game and the, you know, the excitement that was still there. I don't know why, but that one was the first one that popped in my head. But the real number one, I would say, was uh, the World Series in 2016. Um, I... I was there in Cleveland when the Cubs and I'm sorry for any Cleveland fans <laughs> who are listening, but, um, but when the Cubs won that world series, which of course was the first time they had won anything in over a hundred years. Um, that was, uh, that was really, uh, really, really special. It was probably more special for me, I guess about a week and a half before that, when I was in Chicago, uh, when they closed out the NLCS against the Dodgers, you know, that was the first, that was their first trip to the world series, of course, in so long. Um, I went to college in Chicago, the same time that the Steve Bartman incident happened. And for those that don't know, that was a, the the Cubs had a chance to go to the world series in 2003, uh, should have done it. I mean, they were five outs away from going to the world series in game six and there's innocent foul ball goes into the stands Left fielder had a chance to make the play. A fan got in the way and dropped the ball. (laughs) And from there, the Cubs gave up like five runs in the inning, lost that game, lost the next game, and they were out. (laughs) But they should have been going to the World Series. So I remembered the hurt that the city of Chicago had uh, in 2003. So in 2016, to be back and they clinch – you know, I remember being on the street outside Wrigley Field right after that game and seeing this one man in front of me just kind of staring up into space and tears just streaming down his eyes. Um, you, you know, so so seeing moments like that, that that makes my career uh, 
that that's part of the reason why I got into this. A big part of the reason why I got into this because I want to make sure that I am there for those uh, those cool moments and that I'm relating them to other people. You know, the live shots we had after that were were insane because we had fans behind us, you know, going crazy. And, and Cubs fans are are certainly an animated bunch. Um, you know, so that was that that's a big memory as well. And then, like you said, some of the athletes um, that I've covered. Uh, whether it's Jameis Winston when he was, you know, of course, in his NFL career hasn't done much, but he was a Heisman Trophy winner in college. And I covered him at Florida State. And, uh, you know, being around some of those other players on those Knowles teams uh, was. Did you was, and uh, did you and Jameis, did you guys go out for seafood? At <laughs> no. Florida State? Well, well, well I, will, I will also say I only covered him his, <laughs> his true freshman year and his redshirt freshman year. I left in the middle of that actually to move to Cincinnati. Uh, I, my first day in Cincinnati was Labor Day that year. Geno Atkins signed a contract extension. I'm like, I don't know how to cover this. This is the first time I've been around this team, you know. But Geno right. Atkins signs a contract extension on Labor Day. And that day, the Bengals were playing, or excuse me, the uh, Florida State was playing at, Pitts, uh, playing at Pitt at Heinz Field. And so, of course, I'd end up at Heinz Field a lot <laughs> in the next right. few years after that. But, um, but yeah, he went, he went nuts. And he had something like, I think he was like 21 of 24 passing. And his first 21 passes were all completions. The, the first incompletion was just a pass he had to get rid of. It was the only reason it was incomplete. Right. So he, was, he was on fire. Um, so that, so I didn't, I didn't cover him enough to, to have <laughs> gotten, gotten a crap. <laughs> did you, uh, did you develop a, a hatred for Heinz Field the way that all Bengals and Browns fans have, or, or not being from here originally, you still stayed neutral? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I, I, you know, and you have to stay neutral in this business, but I, I will, I, I remember the place that I lived in Cincinnati, um, is I lived in Clifton and, uh, there was a, you know, I, I had a, a little, you know, uh, exit from, from the building that I lived and there was somebody lived right across the street that had this big Steelers flag. And it just always blew my mind. I'm like, how does this person live here? You know? um, I, and actually we weren't far from the Steelers bar. I forget the name of it, but I know the Steelers bar is That's there. That's partly why we've not won a Super Bowl because yeah. we're too tolerant around here, yeah, right? Yeah. We should allow that kind of yeah. stuff to happen in this city. Yeah. Oh, I mean, oh. that's another memory of mine, too, is that playoff game in 2005, well, uh, January of 2016, um, you know, when it looked like the Bengals had it wrapped and, you know, Jeremy Hill fumbles, Vontez Perfect runs into the, you know, into the, the locker room. Uh, yeah, the Vontez does what Vontez does. And next thing you know, foul, or- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget that. And I, I, that was one of those, again, you know, you separate yourself from it. You're not, um, you're, you're, you're very, you know, you're, objective right um but that was one of those nights there was just so much going on so much to write about that I think I got back home at maybe two in the morning two or three in the morning and I needed to take like basically a power nap and then I got back up at like five and I'm like I still got more to write you know I gotta write about this I gotta write about that and I didn't really come down from just the the energy, the, the, I don't know if it was the testosterone. I mean, you can talk to what was going on in my brain, but I, I was feeling this kind of um, just this, this not anxiety, but just, I felt hyper. Adre- adrenaline. You had a lot, still a lot the of adrenaline going. The adrenaline was flowing for the whole week. And it was finally like that next Friday where, you know, they started having a couple of coaching changes and things. And I'm like, okay, the season is officially done now. I can come down. Right. 
Um, and I didn't down. even play in the game, but I felt like I played in the game. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, again, that's that empathy you have. It's a natural, you have a natural empathy gene, right? You're just feeling like what the feel, what the players feel. Well, let's point some people to some, uh, some of your, your, uh, resources. And, and I will tell the group, you know, Coley's not only um, a great broadcaster, but he's an amazing writer. I had a chance to read some of his stuff. Um, he, he's got a great website at coleyharvey.com. And uh, t- tell us a little bit about how you set that up because you've got some really unique things on there from your blog to your podcast to your six feet, 60 seconds. And what can we learn about you if we go on there and, and dive in a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. Well, that was something that I developed uh, just kind of during the pandemic. I was kind of like, you know what? I want to get more of a landing space for my work and, uh, and a way that I can kind of, you know, show some of that off and also get back to writing a little bit more. And so I launched that in December. And unfortunately I've kind of the last few weeks, I've kind of stepped back a little in part because I've got some, some other irons in in the fire, uh, so to speak, as, as we're recording this right now. And, uh, so that's kind of distracted some of my attention, but I am still, uh, pushing content there. It is still active. And yeah, just coleyharvey.com, C-O-L-E-Y-H-A-R-V-E-Y, excuse me, V-E-Y.com. And um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, when you look at the six feet, 60 seconds, those are just daily videos that I've been doing to kind of give people a, a little idea of something that happened in sports history on that day. And, uh, and I do it in 60 seconds. So it's very easy to watch, very quick to watch. And I call it six feet, 60 seconds, because I actually started doing those on my social media back in like May and June, early in the pandemic. And, um, and so six feet, you know, keep your six feet. And then, of course, 60 seconds and also a play on the six feet, 60, uh, 60 feet, six inches. Six in inches. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the uh, the distance between the pitcher's mound and home plate in baseball. So that's what you did that there. Was. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and you got the blog and um, and uh, yeah, and a, and a podcast, which I'm I'm taking some notes from you because uh, I, I'm hoping to get some guests in that slot here soon. And, uh, you know, and hopefully that podcast, I'll get a chance to grow out just like you guys have done with this. (laughs) Well, fantastic. And for those listening who might be looking for a really engaging and motivational, inspirational speaker, Coley is your guy. I've heard him speak. Um, I watched your your, your talk at St. X and I know just here you can tell uh, you, you're making a big impact. And you, like you said, you, you you got your whole runway ahead of you, man. And I just know you're going to make a big impact, not just in your career, but uh, also really more importantly, just in, in your personal life and the way that you impact those around you. So thank you for being the light that you are and willing to have some of these conversations and, and keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, no, Jeff, you're doing amazing work with this. Uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity and uh, keep, keep up the good work with this platform because you're doing a lot of good with it. So thank you. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21 year hard rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you wanna learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, 
or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life. We've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.